think that's my, my cue. Good to be with you. See so many folks that I know from Yosemite and other places. Where'd Jesse go? Where are you? There's Jesse, my good friend from Florida, known for many years. The Stratmans, good to see those folks here. Pleasant surprise. Others as well. Hope to get to know some of you a little better. A few days we have together, a little bit of time we have together. Um, I was just looking at the little brochure. My name's Larry Price, as was mentioned. I'm from Florida. And I, I noticed on the brochure that as you look at the two different speakers, you find uh, there's some difference between the two of us. <laughs> and uh, I got to thinking about that because there's difference besides my tremendous educational background, um, which is practically non-existent. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I want to say I graduated the School of Hard Knocks. I'm not sure if I ever graduated, but I certainly attended and put in plenty of time there. But one of the things that did just come to my mind as I thought about that is that um, looking at the, and thinking about, and I've known Joe for quite a number of years, that uh, the differences are more than that, but it really sort of captures something that is sometimes lost by people who have a sort of a stereotypical idea of Christianity. You know, they tend to look at folks and think, oh, well, these people are all raised in this kind of thing all their life, you know? And that's one of the main differences between Joe and myself that I think about. Joe has uh, parents, his father's with the Lord now, but father and mother who are very godly people. Probably I would not hesitate to say that his father and who I, I knew a little bit better than I know your mom, but still two people who very godly influence on the two sons. I know his brother as well, Sam. Uh, my situation was completely opposite. My parents were not Christians. I was not raised in a Christian home. But that's one of the beauties, isn't it, about the body of Christ. And it's one of the things that I think is important to emphasize to folks because this ministry will go out probably by way of different media, not only those that are listening here, but in other ways as well. And it is easy, isn't it, for sometimes people to think, yeah, the only reason you follow along in those kind of things is because that's what was taught you as a child, that's what your parents did, and you're just kind of following along in their footsteps. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a valuable thing. And I'm, I'm so grateful that uh, many here that do follow along in the faith of their fathers and mothers. But that's not all of us. Some of us didn't come at it that way, weren't raised in it, weren't raised around it. And so that's one of the things that uh, strikes me as we think about some of the differences that are represented. And yet, here we are, and so we're gonna look together in the Word of God. Now, I was asked to give a little introduction. I'm going to not do much more of that now because, Lord willing, on Sunday morning, I'm going to be sharing about the, the way that I came at it, the gospel of God's grace and how it was that I came to uh, become a believer in Jesus Christ. So Sunday morning, I'm gonna be doing that and then you'll hear the story of a man who was not out looking for the things of God or looking for the things of the Lord, but uh, nonetheless came to learn that uh, there's a God who 
loved him enough to give his son for even a person like me. And so, Lord willing, Sunday, if you have folks that you, could, you might know that would benefit from that and you could invite them out for that meeting on Sunday morning, uh, it'll be new to some of you. Some of you have heard me give my testimony at Yosemite and maybe other places, but this is going to be new. Uh, it'll be different. Um, you got to do that. You know, if you go different places, you can't say the same thing. I mean, I gave my testimony one time in, out in British Columbia, and there was a young man who followed me around a bit, different meetings, conferences, and things. And I don't go around just giving my testimony, but they asked me to. And so um, that night he says, you're going to give your testimony. He says, I've already heard it twice. I said, don't worry, this one's different. He goes, <laughs> I said, in this one I die. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, what? You know, anyway, you got to mix it up a little. But this one will be different because we're going to have pictures, pictures from the past, a blast from the past. Out of the archives of history, I have dug out some uh, photos, and so you'll see the me that was uh, compared to the me that is. So that'll be one of the things that we'll, we'll try to do, Lord willing, Sunday morning. Well, let's turn to the book of Revelation. We sang in that first hymn, very fitting. I will praise him. Praise the Lamb for sinners slain. Now, if you had a little hesitancy when I mentioned the book of Revelation, that's understandable. But we're going to see why this book is a tremendous book, not only because of the, tre the tremendous prophetic things that are found in this book, but this book is, in one sense, first of all, as it says in the very first line of the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that ought to tell us something right there. The word revelation means to unveil, to reveal something, to make it known. So this book is going to tell us something about Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Sometimes I just issue a little challenge to the younger set, whoever else wants to jump in on it. Um, if you, you know, are a little bit hesitant about going at the book of Revelation because you don't understand a lot of it and there's things that are, are admittedly difficult, um, I'll, I'll give you a, an approach that you will not be disappointed with. Go at the book of Revelation, every chapter, and look for something that it tells you about Jesus Christ, and you won't be disappointed. You'll find this book unveils the Lord Jesus Christ in a very unique way. And we're going to be looking at that in some of the ways, the book as a whole, and some of the major themes that have to do with this book. But let me just read a bit from chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So right there in those few verses, in the introduction, listen to what the Spirit of God through the word of God would tell us. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is an unveiling of Christ, a revelation of who he is in this book, things that can be known about him. 
Secondly, it was given to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Third, it is called in verse 2, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned that on Sunday morning, Lord willing, I'm going to be sharing my testimony, which I prefer to call the testimony of God's grace. But nevertheless, I will testify to you. But here's the testimony of Jesus Christ, this book. So Jesus Christ will be testifying certain things to us, witnessing to us of certain things in this book. Another encouragement of things that we can know. And then you look at verse 3. There's a blessing attendant upon those that read and hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written therein. So John's told to write, we're told to read, we're told to obey, and if we're told to obey, uh, there must be things that we can know about this, this book in particular, right? And so that's a little bit of encouragement at the very outset as we think about this book of the Revelation. Now, if you've ever read the book of Revelation at all, I'm sure many of you have, and perhaps some of you studied it intensively, you know it is a book that is filled with symbolism, hence part of the difficulty. Some of the symbols are interpreted for us, as we'll see in just a moment. Others are not told specifically. Others, we have to look at other parts of the book and other books in the Bible to uh, come to a better understanding of what the symbols represent. But the symbolism that's used here does convey this to us, that God wants to stir not only our intellect and not just our will, which he certainly does, but he wants to stimulate our imagination to cause us to think about these things and what they represent. And we're going to see that tonight. One of the reasons why I said that hymn was so fitting, even though there wasn't any communication between us about what would be sung or any of that, that song was chosen. It's because it speaks of the one who is the lamb. I will praise him. Praise the lamb for sinners slain. And you'll find that in this book of the Revelation, one of the most common terms that is used to identify the Lord Jesus Christ is that of the lamb. Now, God could have just said throughout the book, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't. He uses that term the lamb. And why does he use it? Well, we'll see in this book. But it conveys something to us, doesn't it? Why the lamb? Matter of fact, one of the interesting features of this book is I, I suggest sometimes that if you wanted a sort of a popular title to think about what this book is about, you could uh, title the book The Triumph of the Lamb. The Triumph of the Lamb which is very suggestive in and of itself. How is it that a lamb could triumph? What, what is there victorious about a lamb? You examine the world powers, the governments of the, of the earth in which we live, and you, you think of the insignias of some of the world's governments, and none of them pick that I know of, an animal that's as passive or as docile as a lamb. They want a ferocious beast or an eagle or, you know, a lion or a bear. A lamb? How is it that a lamb could be triumphant? And yet this book is the story of the triumph of the lamb. So that's uh, one of the ways in which God seeks to stimulate our 
thinking about uh, the symbolism that's used to cause us to think about these things and to see them in a way that's, that's fresh to us and that is uh, something we can really get a hold of the concept that's behind it. So we're not going to answer all your questions about the book of Revelation this, this uh, couple of days together. It's not even going to be my goal. Uh, if you have any really difficult questions about the book of Revelation, see Joe. <laughs> He'll be glad to answer those for you. <laughs> but we're going to get a little sense of what this book is about in the bigness of the theme that is here. And one of the beauties of this book as we see it, it you know, it's, I don't know, it's almost oversimplistic to say, but it's a fitting end to the book, to the Bible. It's a satisfying end to the Bible. If you think about it, if you didn't have this book, how would it all end? You know, what, what would be the outcome of everything that we've read from the book of Genesis and all down through the prophets and, and on into what we call the New Testament without this book as a book of consummation? as a book that shows us how things will finally play out, what will be the outcome of these things. And one of the great themes about this book is that it reveals to us God's government. Now, if I just mention the word government, that can leave a little bit of a sour taste in folks' mouths at times, right? Uh, we, we realize that in the world in which we live, in society in general, we wouldn't get along very well without government. We sometimes think we would. But when we begin to break that down and think, what would a world be without the protection of a military? What would a world or society be without the protection of police? What would the world and society be without any laws, you see, or any government? It wouldn't be as ideal as we sometimes might think it would be. But having said that, government has a very simple problem and yet very profound. If you were to turn back to 2 Samuel, I think it's chapter 22, it's 22 or 23, it's one of those right in that neighborhood. You would read about a man who knew a good bit about government. His name was David, and he was a king. And he begins to reflect on the last days of his life as he's in the waning years of his life. And he begins to reflect on the question of government. And he sums it up this way, something like this to say, that here's the, here's the problem. He that ruleth among men must be just. <laughs> There's the problem. It's not the government itself, you see. It's that we have an inherent flaw as human beings. And to find one who is perfectly just, who always makes the right call, the right decision, perfect equity. Well, there's the problem, isn't it? But this book shows us about God's government, and that one day upon this planet that we live in, God's government will be manifest on the very earth in which we dwell. And so this book is a fitting climax to what we call human history. The book of the Revelation. We're going to move now to chapter 1 and verse 12. I want to think tonight in the time we have that I have remaining 
of God's government as it is revealed in three ways in the first few chapters. First, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 in verse 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest write in a book, send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, or lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps, the midsection with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It's quite a description, isn't it? Very vivid. Imagine as John turned to see the voice that spake with him, and he turns and he sees seven lampstands or seven candlesticks. And in the midst of those seven lampstands or candlesticks, one like the Son of Man. He begins to describe what his garments look like, what his features were like. This is none other than the, the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a captivating vision. And I'll tell you what's unique about it in one sense. When you stop and think that the last view that the world ever had of Jesus Christ was of a man in apparent weakness dying a criminal's death on a cross outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. That's the last view that they ever had of him. I used to wonder, I don't know whether you ever thought about this, but even before I was a Christian, I used to wonder when I heard a little bit about things in the Bible, you know, you get a little snippet here and there, and, and why didn't Jesus Christ just come out and show himself after, you know, he was raised from the dead? He never showed himself except to those who were his followers, believers. He didn't go to the world at large and reveal himself after he was raised from the dead. Interesting, isn't it? The last way the world ever saw him, and some people still do, some religions still do, some people still do, a man crucified on a cross in apparent weakness, dying a criminal death. But after he was raised from the dead. And after all those many, many weeks that the book of Acts tells us about, fascinating period of time. You know, when I learned the little snippets of Sunday school when I was sent as a little boy, you learn things in a very concise way. So I learned Jesus Christ died, uh, three days later rose from the dead, went back to heaven. That's true, isn't it? But it's not exactly how it happened. Not exactly. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. 
And then for almost six weeks, he showed himself alive to his followers. Did you ever think about that? You know, Easter, the time we call Easter, it comes at a different time every year because it follows a Jewish lunar calendar instead of a solar calendar like we have, based on Passover and all that, not based on a fixed date. So you notice that Easter is different every year. Some years it's very late. It comes way to the end of April. I preached a message once. Once, where was Jesus in June? That it was possible that in June, Jesus Christ was still making appearances on planet Earth before he ascended back into the glory. It's why Luke writes in the book of Acts, by many infallible proofs, he showed himself alive to his followers for all those days until he finally ascended just before Pentecost came. Interesting, isn't it, to think about So this was no mere apparition. This was no mere hallucination. This was no mere mere temporary phenomena. Over and over, he showed himself alive to them. They saw him, and then he ascended into the glory, and this is how he is now. This is how Christ is now, you see, and how he'll be as he moves among the churches as we see him here. This is the vision of in a sense, how we ought to think of him now as risen and glorified. And it's quite different, isn't it? You begin to look at the description given to him of this garment down to the foot, his official dignity. You know, um, ladies will know this, formal wear, a gown is not a miniskirt. If you go to something formal, it's a long gown, isn't it? When a judge is on the bench, generally, the robes that he wear are long. It is expressive of dignity. And the robes that he wears here, his official dignity, his midsection, around his midsection, a golden girdle, that which is of the highest value. And a girdle is something that holds things in. The midsection, the place of affection, the place of emotion. Because when Christ, when God judges the world. He'll not rise up in anger flying off the handle. He'll not wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day like the mythology of the Greek gods and hurl a few lightning bolts down with his emotions in absolute check as he rises to judge the very planet that he created. His head and his hairs white like wool. The wisdom, the holiness that is indicative there. His eyes like flames of fire. The consuming knowledge. His righteous judgment. His feet like fine brass. And his voice like the sound of many waters. You know, when I first read that phrase years ago, I thought, that's kind of like the rippling of a brook. You know how you hear the little stream going along? Not so. Then I visited the place once, the place of thundering waters, Niagara. You could close your eyes and know that you're getting near the falls before you ever get there because of the thundering waters. And that'll be the authoritative voice of the Lord that speaks forth, the person of the Lord Jesus. In his right hand, seven stars, not the little gold foil stickers like you put on a chart, you know, for your kids or in Sunday school. These are stars. They're in his right hand, it says. 
He holds them there in absolute sovereignty and administrative power. And out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance like the sun when it shines in his strength. And, And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But imagine this. You've just seen this vision of Christ risen, glorified as he's seen him. Seen that right hand with those stars. And he says, he laid his right hand upon me. Same right hand that just was holding those stars. And he said, of course, fear fear not. (laughs) You know why he said that, don't you? (laughs) Because John probably shaking in his boots on that right hand. The right hand of the Lord of glory laid upon John. But he said this, I am the first and last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And how much is encompassed in that? Why was he dead? You see, John would know this truth, wouldn't he? He was dead because of John. He was dead because of me. He was dead because of you. And that one who died for us, you see, we can stand before him because he died for us, the Lord Jesus. And so the vision of his person, he's seen in the midst of these seven lampstands, the candlesticks or the churches. I'll not take the time to go into chapter two and three much except to say this. There are seven churches There were many more churches in that day. The fact that there are only seven selective indicates something to us, that these are representative, that much could be said about many other local churches that were there. But it also says this to me, that whatever else these letters say, whether we see them as a historical continuum, whether we see them as anything else, there were seven churches that on a Lord's day or whenever it was they got together to meet. Somebody got up and read a letter. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? That letter was read to that local church. And as you study the churches, you'll find, and this is always interesting to me, I travel a bit, as some of you know, and uh, sometimes because you travel, folks think you have an edge on certain things, you have an answer to certain things, or maybe because you have an experience that's a little wider than theirs in some areas, you, you, you know, so, so I get questions sometimes. What do you think is the answer, the answer for the church today? That's an interesting question, isn't it? But I do find this, and I sometimes refer to this. There were seven churches. The answer for Ephesus was not the answer for Pergamos. And the answer for Thyatira was not the answer for Laodicea. And the message to Philadelphia was not the message to Smyrna. Because each local church there had unique qualities. Some had good, positive things going for them. Some had things the Lord had to rebuke. Some was a question of one area they were strong, another they were weak. There was no one answer because the churches were different. But we do find this, that in each letter that is written to the church, as the Lord himself addresses that church, there is something that comes from the vision of Christ 
that John saw in chapter 1 that the Lord addresses that church with. So he says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 and verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. You look at each of the messages to the seven churches, and you'll find that the Lord presents himself to that church with something that comes out of the vision of Christ in chapter 1, which tells us that whatever those local churches needed, it was found in the risen, glorified Christ. That whatever the problem was, they could look to him as the resource to either correct or whatever the need might be for that. It was found in the Lord Jesus. And oh, I tell you, you know, that may not be as instantaneous as some things we like sometimes, but to learn to look to the risen head of the church for what we need, to realize the all-sufficiency that is in Christ. That's how he presents himself to these seven churches. And he presents himself to these seven churches as the one who alone can evaluate and critique that local church to see its strengths, its weaknesses, its good points, and its bad points. The Lord Jesus, in relation to the church, God's government begins with the house of God in this book. And then, moving along a bit, we come to chapters 4 and 5. John looks in chapter 4 and verse 1. And as he looked, he sees a door open in heaven. From verse 2 on, John is no longer a man on the earth look, looking at the scene that unfolds. He's now, as a man caught up into heaven, looking at the scene in heaven and looking at what unfolds on the planet. It's a whole different perspective. The first thing he sees as the door is opened in heaven, immediately I was in the spirit in verse 2, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now, Joe, there's two cups of water here. The one with the least will be yours. <laughs> Unless I drink out of them both, then I have no communicable diseases anymore. I don't think. <laughs> the first thing John sees is a throne in heaven and an occupied throne. Can I remind myself and just let you join in with me on that little reminder that as turbulent as this world is in which we live, as out of control as sometimes things seem to be, there is in heaven an occupied throne. That throne has not been abandoned. God is still in control of this universe. And in spite of what we see sometimes with our eyes, things are working out according to his perfect plan. It's hard to see that sometimes. 
It reminds me of the poem about the, the weaver. I don't know if you ever remember that old poem. It kind of strikes home to me because my grandmother used to do needlepoint. And she'd do these big tapestry needlepoints. If you turn them over, it just looks like a jumbled up mess of all very colored threads. But when you, you turn it to the other side, you realize the pattern that's there. And there's a poem about that. I'll not quote it for you now, but it speaks about that. Not until the, 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 the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. It speaks of all I see is the underside. It looks like a bunch of jumbled up threads and stuff. But if you ever turn that canvas over, you see. And so we look in the world around us. It looks like everything's out of control and, and, and things have gone wild and crazy. And in one sense, there is an aspect of truth to that. But listen, John sees an occupied throne and a God who's seated upon that throne, showing in this book of his government how his plan will be brought to perfection on this planet in which we live. An occupied throne. That's tremendous, isn't it? That God can control the universe. I want to tell you something that's almost more wonderful than that. Not only can he bring order out of the chaos of this world, he can bring order out of the chaos of the human life. Because God, who's big enough to occupy the throne of the universe, in one sense, is small enough also to occupy the throne of my heart and my life. And my life will never be what it ought to be unless he has his rightful place in my heart and life. And the God who controls the universe and will bring his perfect plan to fruition and to fulfillment on this very planet is still a God who will not force himself upon my heart. I must acquiesce. I must yield myself to him and allow him to have his rightful rule and rightful place in my heart and life. Amazing, isn't it? That the God who can speak and cause things to happen in this universe and yet when it comes to human beings, you and me, we must submit ourselves to his perfect will. And so an occupied throne. A throne, of course, speaks of government. If you were to go through chapter 4 and just mark in your Bible the number of times you find the word throne, the number of times you find the word seats, because it's the same word, those that were seated, 24 seats, the throne, God's government. And what you get in chapter 4, when you come to the end, is that those that are in heaven, that are surrounding that throne, fall down before the throne and give honor and thanks, in verse 9 of chapter 4, to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure, for thy will, they are and were created. 
That's a powerful statement, isn't it? That he occupies that place worthily because he is the creator. He has created all things. They were created for his will, for his pleasure. You see, it's the reason why. If you don't come to know Christ as Savior, if you don't get saved, if you don't come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, and enter into that salvation, your life will end up frustrated. You'll never find what God intended for you to have because you were created for his will and for his pleasure. And life is an ultimate frustration if you never come to that place to submit yourself to the one who created you, who has creatorial rights over you and over this planet. God's rights by creation, his government based upon his creatorial rights. And yet we come to chapter 5, and there's another basis for his government. John sees in the right hand of the one who sits on a throne a book. It's a scroll sealed with seals. And an angel comes and proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And when you come to chapter 6, that scroll will begin to be opened and the judgments that will be poured upon this planet, yet in a future day, they begin to be unleashed upon this planet. Who is worthy to do that? And the angel makes the proclamation. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book or to look upon. And I wept, he says, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book or to look on. One of the elders says unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome. He has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And there it is, isn't it? Ah, there's the basis of his government. A lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the line of kings, the monarchy through David. Here it comes. And he turns and he looks. And it's not a lion that he sees. It's a lamb as though it had been slain. A sacrificial lamb. Interesting, isn't it? Yes, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he's the root of David. Yes, it's the right line. It's the line of the kings. It's the monarchy. It's the promised prophetic sure mercies of David. It's all of that. But as John turns, it's not a lion. It's a lamb. And the lamb steps forward and takes the book out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And not only does no one protest, In the end, they fall down. Listen, this is one of the powerful passages. If you ever get challenged, or if you're challenged in your own thinking about the deity of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We're talking about heaven and God seated on a throne. You think he'd tolerate any worship that was not going straight to himself? And yet they fall down around the throne, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the sea, such as are in the sea, all of them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And they fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Right there before the throne, worshiping 
the Lamb. What a beautiful thing it is. He is worthy, and he's worthy because we read as they sang a new song. Verse 9, worthy to take the book because you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, out of every ethnic group, out of every language group, out of every people and nation. You've redeemed us. Not only does he have the rights of government because he created all things, but the rights of government are his by way of redemption. And think of it, even on a personal level, you that are here or hearing my voice by means of media or whatever, how is it that the Lord enacts his government in your life? Do you say to yourself, well, you know, he's like a lion, and he's just, if I, if I make a wrong move, he's just waiting to pounce on me. And so in fear that that lion's going to, you know, just overpower me, I submit myself to him. Or do you say, rather, that's really not what it is that moves me and motivates me. <laughs> what it is is this, that he was slain and he redeemed me with his blood, that he died for me. In the language of Paul, the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. And there is no greater motivation than that. That's what moves us to submit ourselves to him as Lord, isn't it? That he loved me and he gave himself for me and he shed his blood for me. And I bow and accept his government, his rule, his authority over my life on that basis, which is the same basis and ground of the rights of his government over all of creation. Same as it is for us as individuals. Amazing, isn't it? What a savior. Praise the lamb who was slain. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Give us good thoughts of him. Be with our brother Joe even as he would come and speak your word to us. We give you thanks. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.